0: Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. The time is 9.59, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at weru.org. Wabanaki Windows, with your host Donna Loring, is up next.
1: Welcome to Webenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webenaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we'll be talking to Bill Thompson, the sub of the Penobscot Nation. He's a writer. Um, he works for the tribe uh, in the Natural Resources Department as the Air Quality uh, Program Manager. <clears throat> he's also the chairman for the National Tribal Air Association, and uh, today we 'll be talking about his uh, his favorite subject, which is air quality uh, so welcome to the show bill
0: thanks donna it's good to be back here yeah. again
1: that's right you were here a few uh months ago
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, so give us a little background about your uh, your air quality program
0: okay, thank you uh, it began as an offshoot from the water quality program that the tribe runs and uh, this was back in 1997 they were asking you know we have this impact from human activities uh, up and down the river uh, a lot of the paper making you know stuff and as well as people using the water well there's a lot of things in the water that couldn't be attributed to mills or boating or people you know living next to the river so, um, they decided to explore that with a scoping study, and it was obvious that some of the stuff that was showing up, some of the pollutants uh, were coming from rain. When you think of rainwater, you think of you know, pure, you know, it's fresh, it comes from the sky, it's uh, clean. Uh, it's not. The, uh, the rain actually washes pollutants out of the sky and sort of concentrates them so we're seeing a load of material coming not only from away from the river but actually out of state and that's called transport so they decided well we're going to have to you know look for some funding sources to the state had an air quality program let's figure out how we can get one for ourselves too and they did now when you say they, who is it they? Uh, <clears throat> that would be uh... Dan Cousney is of the water quality uh, program that the tribe runs. Uh, the Department of Natural Resources is um, directed by John Banks, I'm sure people you know, know who that is. And uh, from there, they decided to, uh, to look for funding for an air quality program. And uh, they went and put out the position for the program manager. Uh, on the on the front end, um, we ended up with uh, Daryl Harmon, who is now the senior uh, Indian policy advisor for Indian programs in the federal government f- under EPA, and uh, that's where a lot of the funding is coming from.
1: So Daryl Harmon is is a federal government person that sort of manages or helps you to manage this program. Or?
0: Exactly. Yeah, he does that for tribes across the country. Uh, there's ten regions plus Alaska that have tribes, and um, yeah, he worked for our tribe to get his foot in the door, so to speak. And I always joke with him that he used our tribe as a stepping stone, but he uh, he actually uh, does very well.
1: So what uh, what geographical area does your program cover?
0: <coughs> I'm glad you asked that. Um, the the work that we do for our environment helps everybody in the state and. And it's not to uh to shut anybody down it's just to make sure people do things responsibly. so we have uh an ozone station right on the right on the reservation um, it's actually connected to the Department of natural Resources building, and it's on a tower uh the the inlet and there's also meteorological data that's for uh, temperature, wind direction, wind speed, solar radiation, rain amounts. Uh, barometric pressure, and um, that's all fed into our server. We have a data logger that collects that data. And we share our data, our real-time data, with the state of Maine as well as the federal government. There is a forecasting capability we're involved with so we can protect people at moment's notice if there's a wave of ozone coming into the area or unhealthy air.
1: So do you, where do you set these pieces of equipment up? I mean, what does, so I, I, I'm trying to visualize this ozone and the, mm. the equipment that you're using. What, what does that look like? I mean,
0: It kind of looks like this uh, studio right behind me. <laughs> a lot of equipment, a lot of wires. Um, we have an excellent relationship with the state of Maine on a science level. Science is where we come together. And um, the federal government has, uh, which funds the the state's air program, as well as our tribes, um, has said, you know, when, you're done, when you get these new equipment to the state of Maine, would you, would you uh, give them, lend your hand me downs, so to speak, your older equipment to the tribes? And so we take these older equipment, which work perfectly fine, and in some cases, they operate even better. Because you know they they're old school, so we have those set up in a room uh, down at one end of the uh, the department of natural resources building, and that 's the ozone
1: so do you have something that you set out in the air to measure
0: mm. yep, the uh, inlet is located about thirty feet above ground on a tower, and uh, that line is a Teflon line it runs down into the the small room into a monitor and every week I run uh, tests on it with an ozone producing uh, device and it's basically a monitor that's been converted Um, I run zero which is clean air we have filtered air and then I run a series of points uh, like um, let's say starting out at 400 parts per billion and then down to uh, 90 parts per billion and uh, just see how well the machine Uh, reads those and the device i use to generate the ozone is certified against a a federal reference standard and the the uh, the tribe is audited which is a good term in this case uh, by an auditor who comes around to the different sites in the state tribal and non-tribal to make sure everybody's running on the same page so to speak that the equipment matches uh, the levels that are being put out by the state of maine for test
1: now, when we first talked about this, I remember you said you were going. Was it Karabassa? Yep, well, What do you
0: do out that way? Um, that there is a site that was established in two thousand and uh, two, two thousand and one. Uh, it's for acid rain deposition, which is uh, to to find out what's in the rainwater that's coming down and polluting our lands, and as well as the Penobscot River. Um, it's basically. Uh, The original site contained uh, two devices. One was a um, a robotic device that opens up when it rains and closes when the rain stops. And uh, it's basically an elaborate uh, structure over a five-gallon bucket that's been sterilized. And it has to be sterilized with only uh, non-ionized water because the device that uh, analyzes the rainwater is extremely sensitive, very powerful. The other device is um, a Belford rain gauge, and that's just to verify that the uh, the robotic device opened and closed during each of the rain events, and that it captured all of the rain. So, sorry. Um, okay. So, so, th- so
1: what are you finding? What are you, What are some of the findings that you <coughs> you you've got from these rain devices? Mm, I'm
0: glad you asked that. Well, to put it into perspective, the the device that the, is used, well, there's a lot of different analysis that goes into this rainwater. I do uh field chemistry back at the air lab on the on the reservation, and then I send off a sample uh prepared and put into an allergen in bottle that's also sterilized. Um, send it off to Champaign, Illinois. Um there is a, a lab there that handles all of the samples from across the country. And in these samples of rainwater, one of the devices is a plasma ray gun, which sounds like something out of a Star Trek movie or something. <laughs> it does. I'd like to get my hands on one of those. Um, what it does is, let me see how you say this, spectrochromophotography, something like that. Spectrochromophotography, yeah. Sp- Spectro-chromo-photo- yeah. yeah. It, uh, it, it puts It heats up the rainwater to the fourth state of matter, there's solid, you know, ice, uh, liquid, water, steam, and then there's plasma, which is where material or matter becomes so heated that it starts to emit light. And what it does is it flares out at certain levels. So when it does flare out, that means that the light flashes, and that's at a specific uh, temperature, and frequency, and that indicates a specific uh, molecule or uh, type of pollutant. Now, this device is so sensitive, it can pick out a single molecule of pollutant in that entire sample, uh, the sample size they use. So, imagine a a football stadium full of white golf balls, and it can pick out the only red one at the bottom.
1: Wow. It's
0: amazing. Mm. So they take that, they take that uh, information, and they can fingerprint the pollutants in the rainwater sample and trace it back to individual smokestacks, say in Ohio or Pennsylvania. A lot of it has to do with the uh, using backwards trajectory modeling uh, and with wind patterns and the topography. And uh, they can follow it back to from whence it came from where it came,
1: of course, I have to ask this question, um, so there must have been some findings that uh, there was indeed pollutants uh, in the rainwater yes and um, where would okay where was the where was the uh, is there one that stands out as far as the the highest polluting uh, site? Mm. And, and where might that be?
0: You know, it's funny. The um, Without, without um, pointing fingers so much, the data that's collected is uh, scientifically valid and legally defensible. It will stand up in court. Um, what has happened is that we are engaged in transport of pollutants, such as ozone, the Ozone Transport Commission. The tribe is engaged with that. We go to the table and bring our findings to the table. The federal government has mandated that um, the the states and tribes all play nice together and reduced vis um, reduced smog or visibility reducing pollutants, uh, ozone being one of them. <clears throat> and um, they ordered them to you know to work it out somehow. So the the states all Kind of gathered into these five different um, regional progress organizations. And the one that the tribe, our tribe, is involved in is called the Mid Atlantic New England Visibility Union, or Maine View. And that is because Maine has class one areas in the state, which uh, primarily are uh, federal parks. Um, and so Because of the weather patterns and because of the prevailing wind, um, as well as the topography of the Appalachian Mountains, Uh, Maine tends to catch all of the pollutants from the states to the west of us. We are indeed the tailpipe of the country. One of the most heavily polluted areas of the state is a place that one would think was um, supposed to be pristine, and that's Mount Desert Island. Wow. Wow. Yeah, It's amazing. Class 1 area. Uh it's uh, it's mandated to be pristine and is highly polluted. So think Hi, about Now, n-
1: let back up. Highly polluted uh with with what? Transport.
0: Yeah, it's like a funnel and this is at the point of the funnel. And, um, and
1: what's in this transport?
0: Mm, uh a lot of ozone. There's uh oxides of nitrogen.
1: So it's a it's a high ozone mm-hmm. uh
0: level. It is. Is it? Yep. How high is high? It gets up there in the 60s and the 70s, sometimes and perhaps the 80s. And what's what, the norm? Uh, you, anything above 60 now, I believe 60 or 65, is when you start advising people to take it easy outside and and not um, exert themselves. If you, if you think about the trails in um, Mount Desert Island, um, if you think about the trail system, you have healthy people who uh, who are hiking during nice, warm, sunny days. And sometimes there's haze there. And uh, believe it or not, folks with a diminished lung capacity would be safer. They might have an episode, but they'd be safer than someone who is healthy and exerting themselves and breathing in deeply the ozone. What ozone is, is um, sort of like a three-legged oxygen molecule. Um, Regular oxygen is happy to pair off with another oxygen molecule, that's O2. Um, If you have a single or, or a three-legged uh, molecule of oxygen. This three oxygen molecules, then it's reactive, and it's an oxidant, and it can do damage to, you know, tissue, especially in your lungs, and it can get in, you know, inside you. There, uh, that is why people take antioxidants,
1: hmm.
0: is against the oxidant.
1: Interesting. So I would never have guessed that. And have you, has ozone uh, warnings been issued to Mount Desert in the past? Uh,
0: I believe so. Uh, what We have um, Martha Webster, who works for the state, is, uh, is the one who sends out the forecasting and she makes the prediction, well, she helps make the predictions. Uh, we all send our data and it's collected real time by the state and um, then it's, you know, it's, it's forecasted to see what the weather patterns would be like. Uh, if it's going to be especially warm, because ozone isn't uh, produced, really. It is created in the atmosphere through the action of sunlight against other uh, pollutants. And uh, when it's up high, way, way up high, uh, it protects against UV. And when it's down on the ground, ground level, then it's uh, concerning and it's dangerous to, well, it's harmful at high amounts.
1: Okay, so... How many areas are there in in Maine where this uh, effect is the the highest, I guess?
0: Um, There's different regions uh, that the state is divided up into, and um, that also has to do with topography. Uh, They get kind of close since we have um, the flood zone, the the flood plains, which is where um, it goes all the way up to, uh, well, past Indian Island before the hills, you know. And so there's about six different little areas down that that can vary, and uh, between each on on their levels. Uh, primarily, though, it seems to be like a almost like a chute that runs down uh, either along the coastline or down to uh, through the Penobscot Valley.
1: Now you uh, you said along the coast. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've already mentioned uh, Mount Desert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is it the entire coast of Maine, or is it just a s- mm. certain section of Maine?
0: Yeah, that's divided up into a couple of different sections, too. And uh, the, um, the pollutants that are falling out of the sky, uh, there's another site that we have on the island, and that is uh, the improved site, uh, the interagency monitoring of protected visual environments. And uh, that, that's the work uh, that the, the pollutants collected on the filters in that uh, site are used in our discussions with other states that plued into our air. We don't really have much to bring to the table <coughs> other than um, complaints and you know pointing fingers, but by golly, they'll listen because that's what they're mandated to do. And um, let's see, other than those sites that I run, uh, I also perform mold inspections and uh, sample for mold in people's houses. Well, I have been, but it, it's it's hard because there's no action level. EPA can't, stand, can't set uh, standards for mold because it's hard to decide on so many different types of molds what is a safe level if there is one. So it it's fair enough to go into someone's house and they ask, you know, look over here, I've got mold, and I say, well, then you should have know, a way to clean that and we'll show you how. Um also I have particulate matter uh devices, filtration devices that I can do and I'm picking up interesting uh levels and readings on the island right now. Um I I started out as a uh, a different project I've been working on. And um because I'm picking up such strange readings, high levels of, of particulate matter, uh that I uh, I'm continuing along to see where it's coming from and you know, what the effect, uh, it, it, where the effect is coming from.
1: Now, you said particulate matter. What mm-hmm. does that consist
0: of? Uh, that's just a fancy word for dust.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Dust. <laughs> so lots of dust,
0: huh? Yeah, except for one thing. Um, the, the particulate matter that I'm picking up has been, f- um, has been filtered down to a size in microns. There's, there are two standards that EPA regulates. Uh, um, uh, you know that we have for standards. One is uh, PM 10, and the other one is PM 2.5. And if you look at, both of these are very small. Uh, a, 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 a particle the size of 2.5 microns is—it would take 40 of them to stretch across the width of the human hair. So wow. we're talking about something that gets into your lungs and gets directly into your bloodstream. And not it, so much dust on your huh. on your carpeting or anything, but
1: so actual. so there's an increase in that mm-hmm. in that matter, and and where did you say that was?
0: Well, I was at one person's house. It was at one of the high points of the island, uh, elevation wise, and um, the the action level for EPA is 35 parts per billion of um, 2.5 PM, 2.5, 35. This person had 1,280 parts per billion.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah, that's just... Is it, is, it, it's, it's,
1: is it in the house, or is it in the air
0: outside the house? or? What? That was uh, on the outside of the house, and inside the house it was like 736. Now, keep in mind that this person, uh, when this was being tested, has a wood stove.
1: Huh.
0: However, it is one with a catalytic um, a combustor on there, it, um, catalytic converter, it, um, should not have been that high, but that's what happens when you open up the wood stove and a puff of snow, smoke comes out. But, um, I went and started looking at other houses too. And so, this was this during the winter you did this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so I went down the road a little bit <clears throat> and, uh, I put a, a mini Vol device on the outside and also on the inside. I run them both at the same time. And, uh, they had high levels inside too. And very high levels outside, and the um these devices run for twenty four hours, so it levels out the peaks and the valleys, the spikes, and gives an average over twenty four hours and that's the that's the uh standard thirty five um parts per billion for um p m two point five so it, it's it, there's other houses, one just uh down the street a little bit that had very low levels outside. And these are places that have tar driveways. So I'm um, trying to figure out where this is all coming from. And uh, these are people who, who have been complaining about uh, some smell from a nearby landfill. And so I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not. But there is some concern for dust. So I've sampled all together about 10 houses so far. And it seems to be a pattern emerging. I just have to, you know. Work with the state to figure out what it is. I'll ask uh, some of my friends in the, in the science field. Work for the state.
1: Hmm. So it, it uh, now have you done this sampling? You said you're still doing it now, right?
0: Yeah, definitely, because it seems that even with the uh, heating season being over, there's still uh, there's a lot going on here. Is
1: it it's still high?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, as it is. high
1: as it was in the winter.
0: Yes, it is. It's it's kind of interesting.
1: So really, if when you look at it like that, then maybe the wood stoves aren't having that big of effect on yep. what's in the air.
0: We've gone uh, the, the place of the wood stove. I, read, I recently, let's see, a week and a half ago, I went and checked it again, and obviously the levels inside were low, but they were still higher than 35. I think it was at 280, I think it was at 280 or so, um, which is still higher than 35. And the outside levels were a little bit lower, but they were still way up there.
1: So how long have you been testing this, uh, these micro molecules? Mm,
0: those devices, molecules, I've been using those. In the
1: th- air, on, on, uh, the in, the, in
0: the community? Yeah. Uh, they were in the air program when I first started in the air program. And, um, so was we, it
1: high back then? Uh,
0: there were some tests. Uh, there were some studies done by the previous air program manager that um, he actually took these mini-volute devices um, out into the, the tribal lands and, you know, the roads out in by camps and stuff like that, and um, the ones on the island have gotten higher since back then. So, you know.
1: can, can you pinpoint when they <coughs> started to get higher?
0: Well, the thing is, is it? Uh, no, I'm sorry, I, I can't tell when they did. It was just pure, purely by happenstance that I happened to discover that they were high. Um, we have had construction going on on the island, but it, you have to be careful not to a sample when they're actually doing the uh... Road work or what have you you know dump trucks going by with dust obviously but these um houses are away from that area so
1: well hmm
0: the heavy stuff uh... falls close to the source but the stuff that is uh... The material that is like two point five can travel a long way so it's hard to pinpoint it's just curious uh... as to from which area uh, these houses are impacted as opposed to others that are just down the street.
1: Yeah, so these, this testing I, that you've been doing on this, is this, have you started, did you start it before the construction?
0: Yeah, yeah, this was done back in the winter time.
1: Okay, and, and they were high levels before the, the mm-hmm. construction started? Yeah, yeah. And then now during the construction?
0: Uh, not while they've been doing, no. Uh,
1: no. Okay, Yeah. all right. And then there's some sort of thought that there might be a connection between the the landfill
0: um I, I, that's too early to say that there's any connection if at all it's just interesting that these are the people who happen to be complaining about that so they they're they're simultaneous but they're not necessarily causative or or, or related to each other it's too early to say but there is testing going on these devices are um are mini balls and they have a battery pack on the bottom and uh measured metered air drawing we're drawing air through over a teflon filter which is you know weighed before and after and there is <coughs> if there's uh, a need for it the, san- uh, the filters can be analyzed with um, x-ray fluorescence or you know spectrophotography or you know other, yeah. other
1: now i know that there are there's more than just one landfill in the state of maine yeah yeah so are there any of these studies being done at the other landfill uh, Communities
0: that mm. there, there, there was a meeting of the minds, so to speak, about air quality a number of years ago. Uh, there's, you know, always been local opposition to people bringing in new uh, sources of emissions, be it uh, uh, industry, you know, or landfills, and wherever you go, people are going to be opposed to that sort of thing. And it can be done, you know, responsibly, but the uh, the the work that we're doing on the island is, is not so much to, um, to blame or point fingers as it is to just find out what is going on and how to reduce the impact on our citizens.
1: Yeah. Now, I, a while <coughs> back, you said something about the uh, main being the tailpipe, mm-hmm. collecting all of these pollutants and yeah. that you could follow the patterns or whatever. And uh, I, I uh, asked you about, uh, is there any particular site where these have originated
0: yes, and indeed. i'm still waiting for an answer <laughs> to that question <laughs> i'll tell you um we are the majority of the impact is coming from uh the states that use coal for electric generating electric generating uh electricity generating and uh ohio and pennsylvania the coal belt so to speak okay. now we expect that to continue to grow uh, because really there is no such thing as clean coal. That's just a misnomer. It can be, um, the pollutants can be scrubbed out, but that's kind of expensive, scrubbed out of the smokestacks. The reason we expect it to uh, continue to grow is because the baby boomers are retiring, and many of them, quite a few of them, are heading south, and they're going down into Georgia and past there into Florida. And when you go down south where it's nice and warm, what's the first thing you do? crank up the air conditioner. Now, the power for that, uh, if it can't be generated there, then it will be made somewhere else to the, and sold to the highest bidder. And that energy uh, will be in the form of coal combustion. And um, so we, we get a lot of the pollutants from that.
1: OK. So are there any, are there any findings in that you've that, that really has surprised you in your, your, your uh, research?
0: Yeah, there was uh, it was surprising that there were minuscule amounts of, um, of radioactive material in the rainwater from Fukushima. Supposedly, the heavy stuff falls out near the source. The uh, the actual isotopes of uranium or helium um, fell near uh, the, s- the reactor. But there is some stuff that actually gets transported and moved around. Um, one of the organizations I'm involved in the the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals has a uh, <clears throat> an air quality focus called the Tribal Air Monitoring Support Center, the TAM Center, and that is renowned in, in the air quality field. One of the individuals there, uh, Judd Harrison, is part of uh, the emergency response for uh, nuclear uh, events, so to speak, like if we had attacks or an accident. And when that happened over in Japan, you know, God help them, God bless them. Um, he was part of the team that was set up to figure out, to strategize how to monitor for the, for the impact, possible impact upon the United States and its territories. And they did some modeling as well as monitoring. And they found that uh, the amounts that were being or would be seen by uh, Alaska and Washington and Oregon States, or even the tip of California on the north, would be minuscule and not not harmful. It would be kind of like uh, walking through an x-ray scanner at the airport. But it was very surprising to pick that up in rainwater.
1: So it was not a harmful amount, it was just enough to...
0: Yeah, we could pick it up, a single molecule or two, but not harmful enough for me to you know, go out there with a, a lead suit on. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, so, oh, yeah. So the, the, what kind of, we mentioned training. Now, what kind of training did you get for this?
0: That's an interesting path. Uh, my own uh, backwards trajectory is that uh, before coming into air quality, I was in water quality. And um, there's funding out there. They have training out in Las Cruces, New Mexico, for water quality, which is ironic because that's in the middle of the desert. Uh, but they're concerned with air, I mean, they're concerned with water uh, quantity as well. So the, the training, um, a lot of it was geologic survey, a lot of it was, uh, you know, uh, water management, as well as checking for water quality. The issues that they had out there are different than what we have here with our uh, vast amounts of water and lakes and, and streams and rivers in this state, in this area but it was helpful nonetheless. I was sent back with a a year's worth of um, wages to work for our tribe in the water quality department, and I gotta tell you, Donna, that was the best job I've ever had. I always look back on that fondly. Um, If I wasn't in a canoe or a motorboat, I was on a four-wheeler, traveling for a 45, uh, 50-minute journey up the side of a mountain to get to a, a, a lake or a pond at the top and then sampling out there, collecting the samples and bringing it all back. That's a long, hard day, but you, you sleep like a baby. I was fit, tanned, trim, strong, young. Those were the days, huh? Those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm a desk jockey.
1: <laughs> and, and where did you do this, all this traveling and stuff, too? Or?
0: <clears throat> well, that was back in uh, 2002 was the training, and um, the, the Penobscot Nation samples... Um, the Penobscot River I think about well the program has about correct me if I'm wrong Dan and Jan and Angie and Jason um, about a hundred sites that they see over a two week rolling period
1: so that's, that's a continuous yes. that's going on right now
0: and they also have devices that are, that are they're called data songs, and they put that in the water and they can monitor the, the water uh, in real time Current conditions, and that's just because of the algae blooms that have been appearing. Cyanobacteria, which is uh, toxic.
1: Yeah, if I remember right, there was an algae bloom a while mm-hmm. back. What was it how, how long of a bloom was that? That was.
0: It went down the whole river from yeah. Dolby Pond all the way down, and there pockets of it where it swirled in eddies. And if you let your dog go in there and drink that water, it would you know. I think if they said it would kill them. Wow. F- when there, did they
1: say, how'd that originate, how'd that happen?
0: It was attributed to a, a certain mill that had released phosphorus, and so uh, they paid a fine.
1: Phosphorus from a certain type of company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so, okay.
0: <laughs> so um, after the funding for my wages ran out for that, uh, that's when I, there was an opening for air quality, a technician. And um, I said, "Well, heck yeah! I'll be getting, I'll be able to help out in the Department of Natural Resources, which is great. You know, it's a great program. And um, if they needed me to go out in a canoe or a boat, I'd be more than happy to join them." So I got involved with the air quality there. And the reason that I mentioned the water quality in the beginning was because the data that we collect for air quality is has been amassed and is still being analyzed. And we're going to bring it back, circle into the water quality to to show some um, some connection, causative connection there, because so much of our culture is based upon the river, the the, the aquatic mammals that we um, we trap and eat, um, the plants, the medicines that are in the wetlands as well as along the river, and the fish that we used to be able to eat, you know.
1: Yeah, I, I uh, <coughs> my suspicion is that now. We can't eat uh, the fish uh, or a lot of the the herbs. Yeah. And, and what about fiddleheads? People mm. like to eat fiddleheads now. Uh, how <laughs> how toxic are those?
0: <laughs> always boil them once first and blanch them. Um, they don't have if they have any fat at all, it's insignificant amount of fat. You have to have fat I to see. store dioxin. So at least there's not you know there's no uh, problem with that. However. Uh, it is not known um, exactly you know what other uptake there might be. There's a Chinese brake fern uh, that uh, uh, see there's Dr. Ma, I believe her name was, who uh, found this out that can uptake extremely high amounts of arsenic simply wow. because of the ionic similarities between uh, certain forms of arsenic and certain forms of phosphorus which the plant does need. So it's specific. These uh, ferns are specific to certain metals, and they become super accumulators. So we have to find out if our, our, our fiddlehead fern, uh, Metutia struthiopteris say that three times fast. <laughs> I uh, can't even say it once. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the ostrich fern, in its immature sta- state, is uh, delicious. I would not call it a delicacy. I would call it a staple. And that's why it's in all our art form from many, many you know, eons, is because it's the first thing to poke its head out of the ground after an extremely hard winter in the state of Maine, or what is now known as Maine.
1: So um, th- you haven't really uh, gotten an answer about the, f- the fiddlehead fern yet. is?
0: Uh, there is some... There's, <clears throat> I'll, I'll leave that up to the water quality department. Um, I'm working on my end from the <laughs> impact of the air <laughs> upon fiddleheads. Uh yeah, so if anybody says, "Hey, take a swig of this, it's rainwater." Uh, just back away slowly.
1: <laughs>
0: hmm.
1: Okay, so uh kind of we've talked about the uh the uh the ozone, high ozone, it's, uh, hmm. uh into Mount Desert Island and uh and so <laughs> I know we're kind of up there because in the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I'll tell you, um, it has been a pleasure to work for our tribe, doing something that is uh, yeah, beneficial to the tribe to try to help. Um, it's, uh, it's been an amazing experience to be a part of the Department of Natural Resources. You know, It started out with um, just a single fellow, John Banks, and and then he went and got uh, somebody to help us with our wood resources, yeah. and um, Russ Roy. And then wardens, you know, and then from there, water quality, you know, it just bloomed. Um, I think it's it's good to to be able to do work like that.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I'm wondering. I don't. You may not even know this. Uh, do we know what the uh, what the count is for like uh, um, lung cancer or uh, the various? Is it high for mm. cancer?
0: On the island? Yeah, one? it's high for people who live around the river. And it's high for our tribe too, and it's high generally in uh Indian country across the country, so to speak, uh simply because of the not not so much the proximity but the actual closeness that uh, uh, a people a civilization feels a connectedness to the earth and all the time that you spend uh with it and uh engaged in it as opposed to you know buying everything in plastic at the local Not store. plastic
1: I've heard. I've heard mm. I've heard people talk about don't drink out of plastic. Why? Right. Why is
0: that? Uh, plastic uh, leaches out some of its chemicals and it depends. There's so many different composi- compositions of plastic. For instance, uh, plastic is porous. Uh, if you have a bottle of water in a plastic container, a bottle, plastic bottle, um, the water molecule is too large to seep out of the plastic. But there's nothing that'll prevent pollutants from seeping into the water from the outside, so water does have a shelf life, even though it's pure, uh, just because it becomes contaminated, and plastic itself contaminates too.
1: Hmm. So these uh, these bottles bottled water in plastic uh, they probably sit in those containers for months at a time. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, uh. We 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 uh, used to buy those all the time, and we just got since we you know, started to recycle uh, a couple of years ago, which is kind of late for us, especially since, you know, we're, we're a tribe and that's what we should be doing first and foremost. Um, when I started to f- amass these bottles that had the spring water in it, I was just amazed and kind of disgusted.
1: Did you test any of that stuff?
0: No, no, I didn't. Huh? I, I didn't want to find out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Too scary, huh? Yeah.
0: So we got this... Uh, this little filter that goes on on the kitchen sink and has a, a knob on it, and you press down and it filters out the water at a, a bit of a slow rate, but it tastes perfectly fine to me and it it's like ten dollars for three months for a filter, and it's a lot cheaper than going out and buying a bottle you know a hmm, bottle of water that's interesting
1: mm. uh, and the the uh and you did mention you said recycle now is there
0: a recycling program on the island now? Or? There is a recycling effort on the island now and there are people who put their um their recyclables into the containers that were donated by the um the old town uh, transfer station. Transfer station will take your recycles, recyclables. And um you bring them up there and they'll, you know, it's number 2 plastic. The little triangle underneath the, the plastic bottle, if it says two, they'll take it, which is like a milk jug, that okay. kind of plastic, as well as uh, any type of metal, uh, cardboard. They ask you to separate the plain cardboard box cardboard from the shiny stuff like cereal boxes. Once you start doing this, it becomes hard not to. It becomes hard to throw anything away without looking at it first. And then in, a, in just in a week or two, you see how much that you have not put into your trash. The garbage that you put out by the curb is small now. You know, you may not even be throwing away food like apple cores. And uh, your box of recyclables is, you know, three boxes is larger, you know.
1: Yeah, I know that uh, Esther, Esther mm-hmm. and is, yeah, yeah.
0: is a real uh,
1: proponent of uh, of recycling. And she's not only a proponent, but she acts on it. She does things, so uh, it's really important to her. And I, I wonder, um, how many... How many? Are there, are there quite a few households that recycle now?
0: I see those plastic things. Uh, we tend to bring our own up to the, the transfer station, um, but I, I see a lot of those boxes on the curbside for those days, or Saturdays when they are collected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and kudos to anybody who recycles out there.
1: Really? Um, okay. Uh, you're listening to WERU Web and Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. We're talking today with sub-chief of the Penobscot Nation, Bill Thompson, about his air quality project. Um, if there's anybody out there who would like to call in and maybe ask him some questions or or make a statement about it, uh, you can call one 625 9378 that's 1-866-625-9378. Um, so you've you've really enjoyed your your switch your switch mm. over to the air quality project
0: Yeah, I'm fortunate to be able to do work like this. Um, you know it's uh it's just incredible to me that it it happened to occur this way because I graduated from college with uh, an English degree. Would you like fries with that <laughs> i I did not go to college so much to become a um a journalist or a teacher. I didn't want to be a, a, you know, involved in that aspect of it. There are people who, those are their skill sets. That is what they do, and I would leave that important work to them. Mine was more for myself. I wanted to be a, a writer, a very good writer, if I could. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not so much to sell books or make money from it. It's just that I can't help myself. I, I have to write. I have to. Oh get it well, out. you
1: are you are a very good writer, oh, and uh, you were I on our show. I Appreciate that uh, about that. But in a fire, it's a good segue to this. We've got a yeah, we got a few minutes here, and uh, I asked you to bring in a story mm. that you had said you'd forgotten last yeah, time. Yeah, I was kind of bummed. And uh, I thought uh, maybe you might uh, take a few minutes to to read us your story.
0: Well, thank you very uh, much. Yeah. Um this your story is uh, I, I like this one because it was a, a segue, as you mentioned, uh between me writing my experiences growing up as a native uh on a reservation and I'm half Penobscot and half uh Irish. Um and and another the, the direction that I, I aspire to be in and that is horror writing. Um we saw this movie called Insidious this uh, weekend, and I think that's exactly how you write a horror story. No chainsaws, no axes, no hockey masks. It's instead uh, creeping, creaking floorboards, rattling doorknobs, and then it goes downhill from there. Uh, very scary. So, this one is called Pumpkin. She wasn't like the other girls, he knew, apart from the way sunlight glinted off her soft brown hair. She could have been anyone. Her name was Abby, and she was new. Robbie Newell had never kissed a girl before, never even wanted to, until Abby came along. After she was gone, he wished that he was magic so that he could zing himself right to her town and walk up to her front door in a tuxedo, holding a bunch of roses. He'd whip out a million dollars and count it in front of her. Then he'd kiss her right on the lips. She appeared one night with her mother on his doorstep in the lightning flashes of a spring thunderstorm. Black garbage bags kept the sleeping bags and pillows from getting drenched. Mommy's, uh, Abby's mom left her standing there as she ran back to the taxi to get the suitcases. Robbie's mom would never turn anyone away, especially when they were in need. She toweled off Abby's hair and then set about fixing up some tea and hot chocolate. Robbie stuck out his hand and introduced himself. When Abby raised her eyes from the floor and he could finally see her face, he almost wet, his, wet himself. There was a tingly feeling in the back of his throat, and his tongue went dry. He felt like laughing and at the same time crying. Instead, he did nothing. I'm Abby. Me and my mom are leaving my dad. <clears throat> Abby looked like she was going to cry, and that was when Robbie's mom whisked her away to the back bedrooms to find something dry that would fit her. The girls were away at Dad's for the weekend, so it was just Robbie, Mom, and Henry, his best friend, who was spending the whole weekend there. Henry came out of the bathroom wiping his hands on his jeans. What's going on? He looked at the sleeping bags and the pillows and the garbage bags. Why are you throwing out that camping stuff? Robbie tried to speak, but his tongue was dry, and he choked. Abby's mom stomped her feet on the welcome mat and set down the rain-speckled suitcases. She smiled at Henry. "'Hi there. I'm June, old college friend of Kate's.' Henry shook her wet hand. "'I'm Henry, old fourth-grade friend of Robbie's.' When they were through smiling at each other, June grabbed the suitcases and headed for the back part of the house. Robbie turned and whispered to Henry. "'She's not alone,' Henry gave his what-a-moron look at Robbie. "'Duh, I know. She's back there right now, laughing with your mom.' "'No, I mean, she brought a girl with her.' Henry looked up at the ceiling. "'Uh, okay, good. So what do you want to do now?' Robbie didn't know how to explain the way this girl made him feel, so he gave up. "'Well, we could try out the Ouija board we found in the closet. "'Yeah, we could go up to your attic.' Ideas like that always sounded good the moment you said them, but once you got all set to do them, Henry was the first one to chicken out every time. Off they went. Kate, June, and Abby sipped from big mugs next to a big plate full of sugar cookies. June reached for a chocolate one. Abby skipped the fourth grade. She's in fifth right now. Kate nodded. You take after your mom, Abby. She's very intelligent, too. Abby had a faraway look in her eyes. She was missing her dad, but at the mention of school, she perked up a bit. I'm learning the flute right now. It's really fun. Just then, the boys came stumbling down the stairs, faces pale as ghosts. The others stared at them with raised eyebrows, but the boys didn't say a word. They just stood there out of breath, bodies trembling. Abby stood up. Show me. The two women exchanged glances of surprise, but the boys didn't move. Part of them wanted to act brave in front of these females, but larger parts of them were scared witless. It was Henry who got his mouth to work first. The the candle blew itself out. Kate's eyes got big. You boys got candles going? Robbie, how many times have I told you? Robbie interrupted his mother. We were trying to get in touch with Muffin, but then there was a cold wind in the attic and it blew the candle out. Both women stood up. Kate pulled a flashlight and hammer out of the junk drawer. The attic? Might be a hole in the roof from a tree limb. You kids stay here. June, would you give me a hand? The kids stood around the table, listening to the creaks of the stairs to the second floor and the squeals from the ones that led up to the attic. Those ones were unfinished, steep in the risers and narrow on the steps. Henry rubbed his backside from where it had slipped halfway down and rode the rest of the way on them. Then he became aware of the girl. Hi, I'm Henry. What's your name? Robbie felt something new inside of him. Like Henry was trying to steal his candy bar or something. "Uh, This is Abby. Her mom and my mom are old friends. That makes Abby my friend-in-law. He edged closer to her. Abby offered her hand. Pleased to meet you, Henry. Henry shook her hand. You got soft hands. "'Robbie threw a cookie at Henry and it broke apart in his curly blonde hair. Ah, oh, what'd you do that for?' "'Henry looked more confused than hurt. "'But Robbie didn't know why he'd done it, either. "'He ran out, embarrassed. "'Henry shook his hair out of the garbage, over the garbage, mumbling, "'wasting a good cookie like that. "'He looked up to see Abby giggling into her hand. "'You have cookie dandruff now. "'Oh, yeah, but better watch out, Abby. It's contagious.' He picked up a, a cookie. You could catch it, just like this. Henry faked a toss at her. <clears throat> the woman came back down from the attic with a Ouija board and the candlestick. "Where's Robbie, Henry?" Kate looked upset. "Do you boys know what this thing is for?" She set the board on the table and went to look for Robbie. June picked up the board. This looks like the same one Kate and I had in college. She turned it over and smiled a secret smile. It is. Her finger traced a cigarette burn. I haven't seen this thing in years. There's quite a bit of superstition about these things, you know. She set it back down and took her place at the table and motioned for the other two to follow suit. I suspect that Kate will want to talk to you and Robbie about dabbling in the occult. Sure enough... That was the exact phrase Kate used when she returned with Robbie. She told them about how it was dangerous to fool around with spirits, that they should leave Muffin alone. The poor dog was dead now for, what, two years and didn't need to be bothered by a couple of goofy kids with a Ouija board. And she finished with the dangers of two kids and a candle and the whole place burning down. And, of course, the boys got up later and used it again. Abby joined them. They stayed away from the attic. Instead of a candle, they laid a flashlight on the floor, pointed at the board, which lit their faces from below. This made them look creepy, sort of like dead people, but nobody mentioned that out loud. Because they crouched over the board to get closer to the the flashlight, the rest of the room disappeared into blackness. It made them feel blind and exposed, unable to see possible skeletal fingers reaching for the backs of their necks, or maybe a dark phantom slithering up to snatch away one to the basement. Abby whispered, You should never try to use one of these alone. She paused for effect. It's like a window for the ghosties to see us. They could open it and pull you in. You'd be trapped forever. No one would ever know what happened to you. Henry rubbed his eyes hard. Don't say things like that right now. Robbie placed the tips of his fingers on the little white tray who wants to start. The lightning died down earlier, but the wind blew harder. The rain thrummed against the old window, against the old farmhouse window panes, and the rattling sounded like tapping at times. They had chosen the parlor because it was out of view from the hallway that led to the back bedrooms and the kitchen. The rug was deep enough to bury your toes in. Abby addressed the board first. She seemed to know what she was doing, which gave the boys at least a little bit of comfort. Greetings to you who are with us here now. Her tone reminded Robbie of the voices folks used in the old movies from the black and white days, as he called them. We wish to communicate with you. If you will answer our questions, give us a sign now. <clears throat> the wind seemed to hold its breath and the rain faltered for a moment Robbie expected lightning to strike at any moment which would surely jump the heck out of them instead there was the sound of a door on creaking hinges the kids looked to the doorway to the living room the sound was coming from in there Robbie's eyes grew wide that's the door to the basement Shh. his eyes began to water He took his hands away from the Ouija board and was reaching for the flashlight when they heard the door suddenly close with a thunk. Robbie grabbed grabbed the flashlight and shined it into the doorway. He didn't know what was worse, not knowing what had just come in or finding out. What if a white face suddenly appeared in the doorway? The three just sat there and there was no further sound. Abby whispered, If we scare it away, we won't have anyone to talk to. Robbie looked back at her. Scare it away? He motioned for them to all go to the doorway and take a look in. As scared as he was, there was no way that he was going to carry on as if nothing was there. So they all kept crept up, each grabbing shirt sleeves and pushing the other one far ahead. Peering around the edge of the doorway, flashlights stuck out ahead. The three saw... "'Nothing. The air was thick, with unspent adrenaline, "'but there was a definite relief in their stomachs. "'What do you think it was?' Henry swallowed hard and crept back to the board. "'Abby shrugged. We asked for a sign, but that could have been a draft.' "'Robbie nodded. This used to be my Graham's house. Maybe it's her.' "'He saw that Henry was looking a little pale, so he added, "'Yeah, it's pretty drafty, too. In the winter you can see the frost on the inside of the windows.' Plus, my Grammy wouldn't hurt me when she was alive. Why would she do it now?" Henry relaxed a bit. I'm sure glad she didn't just appear in front of us. The three gathered back around the Ouija board. Abby looked at the other two. Who wants to go first? Robbie nodded. He looked up and said in a black-and-white voice, "'Are you with us now?' The other two watched his face, and the wind rattled the panes. If you are here, use this board to tell us yes. Almost imperceptibly, the white tray began to move. The felt-tipped feet glided easily on the polished, laminated board. It seemed to move with each intake of breath, each beat of Robbie's heart. The tray stopped on yes. The three looked blankly at each other. There was the urge to laugh or to scoff, but no one wanted to do either. Robbie asked, what is your name? The tray didn't move. After a couple of minutes, Abby urged them to concentrate on the question and told Robbie to ask it again. His voice trembled. What, what do you want us to call you? The tray began to move. It went to the one and then to the three. Then it stopped. Henry smirked, 13? The Ghost is a dummy Abby glared at him. It could be a code. It could be a riddle, or maybe that's just what it wants to be called. Don't make it mad at you, Henry. Henry's smile dropped m- m- ma- mad at me. He shook He took his fingers away from the little tray. Robbie patted his shoulder, Not afraid of a little ghost,y are we Hen? Henry put his fingers back on the tray. The tray immediately slid to zero and then to the letter O. Abby wrote this down on the notepad. One, three, zero, O. Thirteen hundred? Henry giggled. Look, Abby said, if I make the one and the three into a B, Robbie whispered, B-O-O, it spells boo. All three faces went white and nobody could move.
1: It's a great great story. Just beginning. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, maybe know. we can we can uh, actually finish it at some point. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host Donald Loring and you've been listening to Webenaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD Dreamwork. I want to thank my special guest Bill Thompson for agreeing to be on the show and please join us next month for another Webenaki Windows.
0: Support for Wabanaki Windows comes from Abbey Museum, founded in 1928.